Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your spirit into this place as we open up your word, that he would indeed do as you promised what he would do, awaken dead hearts to new life, that you would encourage your people to love and serve you above all else. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> what are some of the great invitations that you have ever received? I've been blessed to receive a number of wonderful invitations, but one that stands out to me was when my family and I lived in Philadelphia. I was in seminary training for ministry, and in order to make ends meet, I was caddying at a nearby golf course. And this, just, this wasn't just any ordinary golf course. This course had been ranked the number one course in America for years and years. And golf's always been a special part of my life. I grew up playing competitively, and I played in college. So I had to pinch myself every day I went in to work because uh, I couldn't believe that I was actually getting to, to be on site at this place, much less getting paid to do so. It was an incredible golf course, but it had even more incredible people who came to play it. It's hard to describe exactly what life was like in the Caddyshack. If you've ever seen the movie, I can attest it's actually pretty accurate. Uh, I would show up to work in a room filled with lockers. There are a few picnic tables and anywhere from five to 50 other men waiting to be called out to go on the course. These were, uh, the other caddies, were salt of the earth folk whose language and reputation, let's just say, were a little more than suspect. So you can imagine what it was like for a seminarian like me to be thrown into the mix. The other caddies were a bit skeptical of me at first, but I, I kept my head down, I, I did my job well, and I eventually earned their trust and we became good friends. Well, one day the caddy master, that's the person who assigns which group you're going to go out with, he actually sought me out and, and asked my input on a group that he thought I might be interested in, in working for. This was a group that came every year, and they were all Christians. They came for a few days, they'd play golf all day, and then they would have a speaker who would come and teach in the morning and in the evening. It surprised me that all the other caddies they really did not want this group. Based on their past experience, Christians had the reputation of being the least fun, the least generous, and the most rude and condescending of all the folks who would come and play the course. And that gave me a lot to chew on as a seminarian. Uh, so I was hesitant, to say the least, of volunteering for this group. But when I found out who the speaker they had brought in was, I, my jaw dropped and I had to volunteer. It was a hero of mine, somebody whose ministry had greatly impacted me, someone I was actually reading at the time in school and whose books were on my shelves. It was the famous Scottish preacher Alistair Begg. Well, thankfully, my experience was not at all like the other caddies' experience in the past. I had the time of my life. The group was filled with some of the most successful uh, businessmen in America who happened to be devoted Christians. And they were delighted for me to caddy for them, not just because I knew a lot about golf, but also because they knew I was going into the ministry. The best part for me was I not only got to be a part of the group, but I got to carry Alistair Begg's bag. 
I've spent three days walking around the hallowed hills of Pine Valley, chatting casually with Alistair Begg about life and ministry. It was an awesome three days for me. And when it was over, some of the folks in that group sought me out. They wanted to stay in touch, and some of them took me under their wing and have been some of my most beloved mentors. But as great as all that was, what happened months later was even more shocking. One day I went to the mailbox and opened the mail and found an invitation addressed to me. It was from this very group of Christians. It was an invitation not to caddy for them the next year, but to actually join them as part of their group the following year. It was an invitation that covered all my costs, and at the bottom it was signed they sincerely hoped I would join them. I remember holding this invitation, trembling, not being able to laugh or cry. I was stunned into silence. I wonder what are the great invitations you've had in your life? I ask because our gospel reading is all about great invitations. The parable that Jesus tells corresponds to the greatest invitation that's ever been issued. It's about the invitation that God himself offers to all people, the invitation to come into a proper relationship with the Lord Almighty, to come and to find your life's purpose, to lay hold of your heart's greatest desire. It's the invitation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and it's held out to you this morning. So let's turn to Matthew 22 and notice three things that this parable teaches us about the greatest invitation that's ever been offered. The first thing we learn about this invitation is that it's not enough simply to be invited. You have to actually make good on the invitation and come. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. This parable is part of an ongoing discussion that had begun in the previous chapter. Jesus has entered Jerusalem just a few days before his crucifixion, and he confronts the religious leaders in the temple. And our parable this morning is actually the third in a series of three parables, as Bill mentioned last week when he preached on the second of those three. And each of these three parables are directed towards the leaders of the religious establishment, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the scribes. And all three of these parables have this as their main point. They all are an indictment on the current leadership of God's people for their failure to respond to God's call rightly. If anyone should have been expected to rightly respond to God's invitation, it was these people. That's Jesus' main point here. He tells the parable in order to highlight just how appalling their response of those who were initially invited to the wedding feast but refused to come. We see just how heinous their response is in verses 3 through 6. Their response is duplicitous, it's dishonoring, and it's devastating. Look with me. First, their response was duplicitous because they refused to come even after they had initially accepted the offer. You know, weddings of any size, especially royal weddings, were massive celebrations. 
Initial invitations were sent out well in advance in order to get an accurate headcount, just as we might today. So in verse 3, when the servants are going out uh, to call on those who had been invited, they're going out to those who had already initially RSVP'd, count me in. Yes, I'll be there. And they come to tell them that now the time has come. So come to the feast. And notice these guests, they go back on their word. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus delivers this same truth more directly to the Pharisees when he says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The response of the guest is it's offensive because they were reneging on their initial acceptance of the offer. But their response is even more offensive when you consider who issued the invitation. All weddings in the ancient Near East were a big deal. They would last for days, invitations would go out far and wide. They were grand occasions. And in this traditional sort of shame and honor culture, uh, attendance was not just requested, it was expected. One commentator says attendance at weddings in Jesus' day, was a social obligation. This was true of any wedding, but how much more the wedding of the king's son? Such a response would have been disrespectful to anyone, but because it was a response to the king, it was actually treasonous. It's hard to imagine not wanting to go to such a feast. It should have been their delight, but it was, in the very least, their duty. How does the king then respond to their treasonous behavior. Verse 4 highlights his kindness and his patience in the face of such an inconceivable response. When his, when his servants return, he thinks, well, surely there's been some sort of mistake here. So he sends out the servants uh, again, and they emphasize the riches of the feast, and they, they beg the folks to come again to the feast. And the response was not just duplicitous and dishonoring, it was also devastating. They remained steadfast in their refusal. The more that the king summoned them, the more obstinate, even hostile, they got in their response. In a similar parable in Luke's gospel, the, the guests at least try to excuse themselves from the feast. But in this parable, here we're told that they simply pay no attention to the king's summons. They just continue on with their business. Others get violent with the servants, even putting them to death. And if the chief priests and the Pharisees were angry with Jesus before this parable, they must have been seething at this point. It's quite an indictment against them. Jesus has unmistakably said that those who should be leading the way have acted tre uh, treasonously against God. And while God has been kind and patient with them in their rebellion, His patience will not endure forever. If they remain resolute in their opposition, if they refuse to come to the feast, in the end, He will put an end to them. Friends, what makes this message so hard for the religious leaders was the fact that they had been given numerous spiritual privileges. They were part of God's chosen people. Elsewhere in Scripture, we are told that to them belonged the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. 
And these leaders should have been setting the example, but instead they came to presume on their spiritual privileges. They had come to believe that possessing the invitation was sufficient in and of itself. And my friends, we can fall prey to this very same temptation. We live in an era where both Jew and Gentile are called into God's kingdom. We, we live on this side of the cross, and there are some amazing privileges that come with living on this side of Jesus' work. In Christ, we have adoption into God's family. Christians have direct access with God the Father through the mediation of Jesus. The Spirit of God has come, not just on a select few, but all who claim the name of Christ. Christians have the blessing of, of baptism and communion, which are tangible signs and seals of God's love towards us. In America today, we enjoy religious freedom, and perhaps there has been no other time in history where God's Word has been more accessible than where we are right now. These are amazing privileges. They're wonderful, but we must not fall prey to the same temptation that the mere offer of these things precludes us from our responsibility to respond to God's call. If you are here this morning and, and have not yet responded to God's invitation, know that the world around you will have you think that that's not a big deal. It will try to convince you that you are justified in your preoccupation. Take your time, it says. There's no rush. If you're young, you have your whole life to respond to God's call. So sow your wild oats. Get around to God's invitation at a time that suits you. That's what the world's going to tell you. But my friends, don't be fooled by this. Jesus' parable this morning teaches us that not responding to God's invitation is high treason. There's an obligation laid upon us that we ought to respond to God's call rightly when He summons. It's not enough merely to receive the invitation. It's not even enough to say that you're going to come. You must come when He calls. And the time for coming is right now. That's the first thing we learn from this parable this morning. And the second thing we learn has to do with how we respond to God's invitation. Namely, you can't respond, you can't come to the king on your own terms. You have to come on his terms. Despite the refusal of the first wave of guests, the king's wedding is still going to happen. So the king issues new invitations. He sends out his servants once again, and this time they go out as far and as wide as they can. They're issued indiscriminately to all people. The servants are sent to the main roads. That's where the foreigners and the poor are found. All are invited to come this time. But even within this group, notice that there is both the bad and the good. Even though they come, not all come to him in the right way. Now, when you and I are given an invitation, whether it's a, to a wedding or to a party or whatever the occasion, it's not going to do to just show up however you please. You must come according to the terms of the invitation. Just as it's inappropriate for someone to show up to a wedding today wearing whatever they want, so too it was appropriate in Jesus' day 
And that's exactly what the king has to wrestle with with one of his guests. This wedding garment back then, it was something that was required to every wedding. Everyone probably had one, but even if they didn't, they would have been provided one because you had to show up with a wedding garment. And yet the king comes into his hall and lo and behold, right there is somebody who's present without a wedding garment. And notice the issue is not that the man doesn't have access to a wedding garment. The real issue is that despite his access to a wedding garment, he chooses not to wear it. So the first group of invitees, they disrespect the king by not coming, but this guest in the second wave, he disrespects the king by coming in a rebellious and inappropriate way. He came not according to the terms of the invitation, but he came on his own terms. And notice his fate was the same as that of the first wave of guests. Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness, the king says. There's a lesson for us in this part of the parable as well this morning. See, the man's fundamental problem can be summed up in just one word, entitlement. He believed that his place at the feast was his by right instead of by grace. He considered himself a host instead of a guest. If he had understood better his true position, he would have realized that the invitation to come to the feast, it had certain conditions tied to it. He couldn't simply come into the presence of the king however he wished. Nevertheless, he felt entitled and came to the feast so disrespectfully that it was apparent by all who were there. And my friends, we face this same problem today. There are many both in and out of the church who fall prey to this sort of thinking. They believe that God is beholden to them, that the relationship operates on their terms, not God's terms. You know, I can't prove it, but I get the sense that this man, without the wedding garment, he probably thought something like this. You know, the king's really lucky to have me here. After all, all those other people refused his invitation. I bet he was pretty desperate. What an embarrassment it would have been for him to come and nobody was present in his house. Good thing that I'm here. You should have, he should really be thanking me for actually being here. That's what I imagine going on in the head of this guest. And the lesson for us is that Jesus flatly rejects this kind of thinking, and he warns us what happens to those with this sort of attitude. He says, their fate will not be any different from those who simply don't come at all. Friends, instead of entitlement, we must approach God with the utmost humility because there are requirements for entering God's kingdom. And those requirements, they bring us all up short. We are all unworthy to enter God's wedding feast because we have no wedding garment of our own at least not one that is pure and spotless. But my friends, the the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ extends his perfect, unblemished wedding garment to all who wish to enter. This is why Jesus, he tells uh, his followers that the primary description of a Christian is one who is poor in spirit. Entrance into the kingdom comes only through recognizing our own spiritual bankruptcy. It comes by recognizing that all our good deeds are like filthy rags, as Isaiah says. 
But in Jesus Christ, we are given royal robes that enable us to enter the feast. But make no mistake, you have to put on these robes if you wish to enter. So how do we know if we've responded rightly to God's invitation? How can we know if we have truly put on these robes of Jesus Christ? How do we know on this side of heaven that we've made good on the invitation held out to us in the gospel? Well, this is where the imagery of the parable, it affords us our third and final lesson. And that lesson is this. The Christian life is like a celebratory feast. If you want to know truly, if you've accepted God's invitation, let me ask you this morning, is the Christian life to you a feast? There's this remarkable scene in C.S. Lewis's final book of the Chronicles of Narnia called The Last Battle that gets right at what I'm talking about. And if you're in Brian's class on Wednesday night, don't worry, I've already gotten permission from him to share a little foretaste of what is to come. There's a scene near the end of the book where two different groups of people have two remarkably different experiences of the very same reality. The followers of the great lion Aslan, that's the the Christ figure, they've just come into Aslan's country, but they came in the most surprising way. They entered this little six by 12 foot stable, and once they pass through the stable door, they find themselves in another world. They're in Aslan's country all of a sudden. They find themselves on on open fields with green grass and and bright blue skies with, with amazing fruit on the trees all around them. And Lewis, he describes it like this. He says, all I can say is that compared with those fruits, the freshest grapefruit you've ever eaten was dull. The juiciest orange was dry and the most melting pear was hard and woody. And the sweetest wild strawberry was sour. And he says to the reader, if you had once eaten that fruit, all the nicest things in this world would taste like medicines after it. And in this new world that they're in, they can still see the door that they just came through, but it's, it's a freestanding door. They can't see the walls of the stable or, or the roof at all. They, they can walk around the, the door in its entirety, and when they peer through it, what they see was the very scene that had just happened prior to them entering, entering this door. Life had continued on through the door just as it was when they left. But there's another group in Aslan's country that had come through this door, and this group was the dwarfs. The dwarfs, they didn't believe in Aslan. They'd been, they'd been tricked before by somebody who claimed to be Aslan. So from then on, they they weren't going to be fooled anymore. They were simply going to live for themselves. Their motto was, the dwarfs are for the dwarfs. And as this first group approaches the dwarfs, the strangest thing starts to happen. All of a sudden, the, the dwarfs, they cock their head as if they couldn't see who's approaching them. They're they're all of a sudden very angry, and they're afraid that others are going to run into them. So they said, mind where you're going. Don't run into us. And one of the young men from the first group approaches and says, we're not blind. We have eyes. But the dwarf, he says, well, they must be darn good eyes if you can see in here. And where, says the man. 
Why, you bonehead, in here, of course, says the dwarf, in this pitch-black, pokey-smelly little hole of a stable. The dwarf's experience of the same place was the opposite of the followers of Aslan. One group's experience was like being in a stinky little stable, and the other's experience was like heaven itself. Well, one of the followers of Aslan becomes convinced that she can rouse the dwarfs out of their mistaken beliefs, and so she stoops down and she picks up some wildflowers, and she holds them up to the dwarf's nose, and she says, listen, dwarf, even if your eyes are wrong, perhaps your nose is right. Can you smell these? And before she knows it, the dwarf's trying to hit her, so she backs out of the way. None of that, says the dwarf. How dare you? The dwarf is convinced that she's holding the smelly things that you might find in a horse stable up to his nose. Finally, a little bit later on, Aslan shows up and he causes this magnificent, glorious feast to appear right before the dwarves. There are wonderful pies and meats, and each dwarf has this goblet of delicious wine. And Lewis says this, he says, they all began eating, but it wasn't much use. It was clear that they couldn't taste anything properly because they thought that they were eating and drinking only the sort of things you might find in a stable. One dwarf said he was trying to eat hay. Another said that he had gotten a bit of an old turnip. A third said he'd found a raw cabbage leaf. And they all raised their precious golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips, but each one was disgusted by it. Yuck, they said. Fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought we'd come to this, the dwarfs say. My friends, one of the clearest ways you can know if you've truly accepted Jesus' offer and the invitation that he extends to you is that now the Christian life doesn't feel like living in a cramped stable, but all of a sudden it feels much more like being at a glorious feast Yes, the Christian life, it's, it's a battle, but it's also a feast. Do you know something of that feast in your own life? Has the Word of God become sweet to you, or is it dry and tasteless? Does your soul crave Christian fellowship more than any other relationship because the Spirit of God has come to dwell inside of each of you, reminding you that this is not your home, but you await the heavenly kingdom? Is Sunday worship a drudgery to you? Or does it feel like a glimpse of heaven? Do the songs and prayers that we sing, do they fill your heart with the drumbeat of heaven? Does listening to the word of God fill your heart with joy and baffle your mind that the maker of heaven and earth would call each of you by name? Is the Lord's Supper that we'll come to in a moment, is it a foretaste of the heavenly banquet that awaits God's people. My friends, if you want to know if you've responded rightly to God's invitation, what's your attitude to these things? Can you see them? Can you taste them for what they really are? My friends, Jesus stands at the door and he knocks and he calls you to come to him. Acknowledge him as the king of your life and receive from him all that he has for you. Forgiveness of sin, newness of life, adoption into his royal family. All these things he holds out to you now. 
If you spurn this offer, there are dire consequences. But if you accept it in the right way, it will lead to unending joy. This is surely the greatest invitation that's ever been issued. It's an offer that can't be refused. All has been made ready. Come to the feast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our gracious King, you are always more ready to hear than we are to pray and to give more than we either desire or deserve. Pour down upon us the abundance of your mercy and forgive us those things of which our consciences are afraid and give us those good things for which we are not worthy to ask except through the merits and mediation of your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.